Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. My name is Laura Fenn, and today I'm joined at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences by Christine Goforth. She is the Senior Manager of Citizen Science here at the museum, and she is also studying to be an aquatic entomologist. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it is an absolute pleasure. So you're studying aquatic entomology. Mm-hmm. Can you yeah. tell me what that is? Yes. Um, so entomology is the study of insects. So I'm studying insects. And aquatic entomology focuses on the insects that live in water, especially in freshwater systems. There are not very many marine insects, actually. You are in a Ph.D. program. Mm-hmm. You're working toward getting your doctorate. Yes. Can you explain to our listeners what a Ph.D. is, what sort of um, process you, you go through to get a Ph.D.? Sure. A Ph.D. is... Basically, just an extra certification that you've gone through extra training um, in science and so that you have a lot of hands-on research experience. Um, and it certifies other people that you have the knowledge to be a really effective scientist. Um, so PhDs involve going to school and doing research for whatever subject you want to go into. They're pretty much the same regardless of um, which subject you go into. Science PhDs, you tend to um, have some sort of either field or lab-based study that you focus on. Okay. So it's the standard um, path is to get a PhD. It's regular four years of college. Mm-hmm. And then you do master's work. You do graduate work sometimes. Some people go straight into a doctorate right after undergrad. Okay. Um, so you can go straight into a doctoral program. Some schools require that you do a master's first, but a lot of them increasingly or letting people just go straight into that doctoral oh, program. Great. Okay. So there's two paths. You can do your four years of traditional undergraduate college work, and then sometimes there's a master's, which might mm-hmm. be two years. And then after the master's, there is the doctoral program. So you will be a doctor of aquatic entomology. Mm-hmm. So you will be doctor go forth. Mm-hmm. But that's different than a medicine doctor. Can you so can you tell me like the difference between a PhD doctor and a doctor that you might go see at the clinic? So doctors that you would see at a clinic have specific expertise in human anatomy, human physiology, human illness. Um, so they've been specifically trained to take care of people and figure out their health issues. Um, doctors of other things, either it, it's technically a doctor of philosophy is the degree. Oh, is that what the PH yeah. comes for? Um, but it's related to all kinds of different subjects. So it, it's just saying, once again, that you are trained in a specific field and that you have extensive knowledge in that field. That you are an expert in that field. Mm-hmm. So the PhD is actually a doctor of philosophy mm-hmm. in whichever scientific field. Um, I know it took me a long time to learn what a PhD was. So <laughs> hopefully our, our listeners were giving you a little step up. So can you tell us then, as the Senior Manager of Citizen Science here at the Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, what does that involve? What is citizen science? Our museum defines citizen science as a partnership between professional researchers and the public to achieve scientific goals. So we're trying to answer scientific questions by getting everyone out into the field and getting them involved in science. Um, So we have a lot of different projects that people can participate in through the museum um, where people are helping collect data, they're helping process data, they're helping to analyze some of that data and actually contribute towards answering some of these questions that we don't know the answers to. So it's not just cookie-cutter science, like the kinds of experiments you would do in a a classroom necessarily, but you're actually collecting real information that's being used by real scientists to answer real scientific questions. Well, I would imagine that there's so much data to answer so many questions that scientists have 
that they probably appreciate all the help of these regular citizens, you know, me and my neighbors and whoever else might be willing to sort of help with the research. So in a way, even though I might not be a scientist, I can sort of help collect data to help you answer different scientific questions that you might have posed. Exactly. And there are a lot of questions that we are just now starting to be able to answer scientifically because we need so many people in so many places at so many times to be able to answer them. So instead of just having one or two researchers working on a topic, they can have a research project established. They've the scientists determine what questions they want answered, and then they can post people all over the world and sort of ask those people to collect specific data, and then that data gets sent back to the scientist, and then from the research that regular people have collected and submitted, they're able to answer whatever the questions might be, whether it's nesting habits or migration or... Exactly. Very, very cool. Um, have you been involved in any sort of citizen science projects here? Uh, I have been. Um, I actually run a citizen science project myself. So um, my project is the Dragonfly Swarm Project. And it's um, the Dragonfly Swarm yes. Project. Okay. So I am looking at a behavior that dragonflies do where they form these giant swarms of anywhere. It could be as small as probably 15 individuals, but it can be millions of individuals. Too. Millions of dragonflies exactly. all at once. Yeah. And so they're swarming around in these big clouds of dragonflies and they're it's a behavior that people just don't see that often. I was going to say, as, as you're saying this, I'm thinking I've only ever seen a single, maybe two dragonflies together. I've certainly never seen 15 and certainly never a million. <laughs> yeah. And some of these swarms are huge, but it's even though these things happen and they happen all over the world and they happen fairly frequently, actually, people just aren't in the right place at the right time to see them a lot of the time. So as a scientist... It was really hard to actually collect enough information about these. You can't be everywhere at once. Exactly. About these behaviors that just pop up randomly in random places. So you have to really have people on the ground in various places that are seeing these behaviors that can report back to you and tell you what they're seeing to be able to study them in any sort of meaningful way. How does a person become a citizen scientist? There are lots of different ways you can do it now. So you could go to a, a science museum in your area. Citizen science is becoming increasingly popular at science museums um, and see what kind of programs they offer. There are um, websites online. Uh, SciStarter.com is a really excellent one. Can you spell that? Yeah, it's um, S-C-I-S-T-A-R-T-E-R. So it's like the uh, like the prefix to science, SCI, yeah. SciStarter. Yeah. Okay. SciStarter. And it's a big um, aggregator of citizen science projects. So it collects all these citizen science projects that people all over the world have submitted to their website. And so people can search through this huge database of, I think it's 750 or 800 projects now, according to what they want to study, whether they want to be outside or inside, whether they want to use a computer, they want to take photos. Uh, so they can search in a lot of different ways and find something that's specifically interesting to them. That's so fantastic. So similarly to how there are, you know, volunteer sites where people can figure out what they want to volunteer for, they can do this in a volunteer manner, but specifically directed towards science. I think that that is absolutely fantastic. So what have you been able to learn? What have people reported back to you about these swarms of dragonflies? <laughs> um, so I think one of the things that I've learned that people probably didn't know about this behavior before, they're, they're forming around big um, explosions in food. Um, so dragonflies are predators. They're eating other insects for the most part. Um, and so anytime you get like a big burst of activity in the mosquito population, you're more likely to get 
these dragonfly swarms forming because they're going to fly around and take care of those insects. Um, so they're helping kind of restore the balance of nature. But one thing that I think has come out of this project that we might not have known before, you know, we didn't know that they were forming these feeding groups before, but there's a lot of um, weather-based activity that really kind of impacts where these things are going to take place. So you'll see this huge increase in the number of swarms you see right before storms and after really major flooding events you get these really huge populations of mosquitoes that um, emerge out of those kinds of rain events. Because um, mosquitoes lay their eggs in the water exactly. and so if there's a lot of water then there's a lot of mosquitoes yeah. and then a lot of food in mm -hmm. the dragonflies. Yep. And then you can get these huge swarms and this is the kind of situation where you'll get a million dragonflies. Um, so there have been reports in I think Minnesota a few years ago had some really major flooding. They had a huge influx of mosquitoes in their area, and they had probably hundreds of these swarms forming all over their um, their state to take care of this problem that was created from the flooding. Sure. Wow. Fantastic. Did you always want to be an aquatic entomologist? Did you always, growing up, were you interested in insects? Did you always know that this was something you wanted to study, or, or how did you get involved with this? I was actually really scared of insects when I was a kid. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Arizona, at least when I was very young, um, and we had these very large insects there. Um, one of them is a Palo Verde beetle. It's close to three inches long. Oof. They've got these big nasty jaws. They've got spikes all over their, their thorax. They're pretty scary looking bugs. I have a very vivid memory, my first insect related memory of being four years old, swinging in my swing and having one fall out of the tree onto my shoulder. Oh gosh. And I'm very very distinctly remember running around the yard <laughs> screaming my head off because this giant insect was sitting sure. on my shoulder, you know, as a very young child. And, and here you are, you know, yeah. now an insect scientist. I was terrified of ladybugs when I was a kid. I mean, I was really, really scared of bugs. And I don't know when that just kind of switched. But I know when I was in um, late elementary school and early middle school, I got really into collecting insects with one of my neighbors um, in Colorado. And we collected grasshoppers out of their garden. They had a really big garden and it was getting eaten by grasshoppers. So we just collected hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of grasshoppers, killed them all and put them in a shoebox. And for a while, we just chased all the other girls in the neighborhood around with them. <laughs> um, but eventually we got into collecting other things and we started pinning things and um, really trying to kind of scientifically classify them. We started getting books on the library and getting more and more excited about these insects we were finding. And pretty soon, that was what we did every day. We were going out collecting insects, had our insect museum, and put all of our insects and put them in little fancy boxes and everything. And and we just got really, really into it. And then when I was in ninth grade, I was in 4-H when I was a kid, and I suddenly realized that there was an entomology project in 4-H. And so I decided I wanted to do that. And reading through that manual, I realized that this was a job that people could actually have and I hadn't ever known that before. I decided my first day of ninth grade after reading that 4-H manual, which is such a nerdy thing to talk about. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> no, it's wonderful. But, yeah. Yeah, reading this 4-H manual just made me realize that this was something I could do as a job. And I just loved doing it so much that I decided my first day of ninth grade that was what I was going to do. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> and I think that, that so many students don't realize that if they're passionate about learning about something, um, if there's something that just really captures their interest, the more and more they research it and the more they find out about it, chances are, you know, there's some sort of science behind it that they could get involved with and that they could really love coming to work every day. You know, if they were to, um, you know, just, just figure out what, 
would make them the happiest, what kept their interest. And who would have thought, you know, <laughs> that, you know, like you said, you had a complete turnaround and it went to being from being disgusted to enjoying scaring people to now, <laughs> <laughs> you know, really doing this meaningful research about it. So what advice would you give to students who wanted to become uh, aquatic entomologist or just any sort of entomologist or really any sort of scientist for that matter? I think just following your passions and really focusing on the things that you're interested in, interested in, um, and not letting people dissuade you from being interested in those things. Liking insects when you're in middle school and high school does not necessarily make you very popular, um, but eventually you'll get through that awkward stage and you'll be around other people that really appreciate the same things that you do and can really help you explore your passions in a really amazing way. So I think just really just holding on to those things you're interested in and not letting people tell you that you're weird or <laughs> that it's something that you shouldn't be interested in just because it's somewhat it's outside of the normal kind of thing. <laughs> and I think that that's great advice, really being true to yourself, because that's really the only way that you're going to be happy is that, you know, and I think that if people are honest about what they're interested in and about what they enjoy learning about, that sure enough, they'll find that there are other people who are interested in those same things. Mm -hmm. Like your friend, you know, when you created this whole museum under the stairs, you know, the fact that you two were open with each other and just, you know, just so enthusiastic about this insect collection. Um, you know, and I, I bet you if somebody else had found out about that, that they would have enjoyed that as well. But it, it takes the courage to really follow your your interest and stay true to yourself, you know, and in order for that to sort of happen. And, and then, like you said, as you get older, then to find your happiness and to be able to do what you love. And so you sort of talked a little bit about how uh, the next question I was going to ask you is how kids could practice entomology in their own backyards. And you had mentioned a little bit about that mm -hmm. um, with the collection of grasshoppers. Now, you had said in the killing jars. Yes. <laughs> can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> so when entomologists make collections, they tend to kill the insects that they are going to put in their collections. Um, but there are things you can do where you don't have to actually kill the insects. You can just observe insects. You can um, watch their behaviors. There are some really amazing insect behaviors if you can just sit and watch things do what they normally do. Um, there are all kinds of citizen science projects you can do. Uh, one of my favorites is called the Lost Ladybug Project. And people the Last Ladybug? Lost Ladybug. Lost, okay. Um, and it's... Um, trying to get people out photographing ladybugs wherever they happen to be and submitting them to the uh, Last Ladybug website. And they're trying to understand how some of the um, native ladybugs that we have in our country or why they're starting to disappear because a lot of them are starting to disappear um, and how the non-native ladybugs that we have in our country now might be influencing that and how pesticide use and land use changes and things like that are impacting our native ladybug populations. And all you have to do to participate is just go out, find a ladybug, take a picture. It's very, very simple. So, you know, there are lots of these projects out there. You can certainly participate in citizen science without building a collection or even ever touching an insect if you don't want to. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay. So since this is the walk-in classroom, I have to ask one last question. Mm -hmm. Where is your favorite place to walk? My favorite place to walk, I think, is Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. Garden Colorado. of the Gods. Mm -hmm. Wow, that sounds, that's, it reminds me of Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> it's this huge rock formation that is in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and it's these giant, big, flat, bright red rocks that have flipped up 
um, due to earthquake activity. So they're standing upright. They're very, very narrow, very tall, very jagged. They're beautiful, beautiful rocks. It's a really, really great place to go in Colorado. They've turned it more into a bit more parky kind of area than it was when I was a kid, but it's still very lovely there and it's an excellent place to walk. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the rest of your uh, PhD programming. And uh, we're really fortunate that you're here with us today. Thank you. Thank you.